We're looking at Matthew chapter 26, reading verses 14 through 35. As we wrap up for the spring, our series in Matthew. Just by way of reminder, as you turn there, Matthew's message has been that the king of, right, the, the king of God's righteousness, by which the reign of God's shalom or God's peace will come upon the earth as it is in heaven, has come, and his name is Jesus. Matthew has told us the story of this message through the narrative of Christ's birth, baptism, and Temptation, as we were reminded even in today's meditation and call to worship. And he has followed that by five discourses on the design of God's righteousness for life in this world, interspersed with powerful demonstrations of that life at work in this world in the ministry of Jesus. And it is climaxing here in the last couple chapters in the account of the passion of the Christ. In the opening of chapter 26, we saw that the powers of this age were aligning themselves in conspiracy against Jesus, but we also saw Jesus co-opting that conspiracy by his, for his greater conspiracy to establish you know, the reign of his peace in his world. Last week, we considered the heart of Judas as the uncomfortable window through which we actually have access and can gain a picture of the heart of Jesus. And today we will look more closely at that, the heart of Jesus, particularly his strategies for making peace in his world. Read with me, Matthew chapter 26, beginning with verse 14. <clears throat> Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they, and they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the, my blood of the covenant which is poured out for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night.
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep, will fl- uh, the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This is the word of the Lord to us, his people. So let us go and ask that by his spirit he would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so, Jesus, we come and we pray that by the gift of your spirit that you gave to us to remind us of all things, to lead us into all truth, that you would indeed open our eyes to behold uh, the wonders of your great love for us that are here before us in this passage, that we would understand them and we would be changed by them. And protect us from error and feast us upon the truth of your love, for we pray it in Jesus. Amen. When I was in high school, uh, we had to read this book called The Jungle. And perhaps some of you have read it. I don't know if it's required reading now or not. Um, But it ought to be. The book is about the meat industry in Chicago in the early 20th century. And it's disgusting. And most of us who have read The Jungle actually went through a time where we could not bring ourselves to actually eat a hot dog because we had read what goes into them. And it's not all meat. More recently, there's a book out by the name of Omnivore's Dilemma, which updates the same theme. It's a little bit more detailed, a little bit more refined, a little bit more grotesque. And there's a movie, for those of you who don't read, that is based on that book called Food, Inc. Last I saw it was on Netflix. I don't know if it's still on Netflix or not. But reading those two books and seeing that movie has thrust me into an existential crisis of sorts. Given what I know about the food that I love and how it's made, what would I do? Would I, could I, actually continue to partake of it? For the record, I still eat Big Macs on occasion, but it is an act of the will. Lawmaking is similar. Many of you might know Martin Scott, who is a former Georgia State House representative and now a pastor in our area. But he ran for state representative and he won. And he went and he did that because he wanted to be a part of making laws that made a difference in the state of Georgia. But he said to me once toward the end of his second term, it is a nasty business. 
So much wheeling and dealing, so much compromising, so much manipulating, so much buying and selling of souls. He didn't run for a third term. Given what we know of the process makes us wonder about the quality and the value of the product. After all, after all the wheeling and dealing and stretching and pulling and cutting and adding, is there anything of real value left at the end of the process? As Otto von Bismarck, that 19th century Statesman once said, if you want to respect law and if you want to enjoy sausage, then don't watch either being made. Making peace, it seems, is a similarly messy business. We all want its benefits. We all enjoy it when we have it, or at least imagine that we have it. But few of us actually want to participate in the process. After all, given what Jesus knows about Judas, given what Jesus knows about Peter, Given what Jesus knows about all the other disciples, how does he love them? How does he provide peace for these people who will show themselves by the end of the day to be at war with him? That's the question at the heart of this passage, but it is also the question at the heart of what it means for you and I to bear the name of Jesus Christ. What does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus Christ? For in the answer to this question, we actually taste and see the glory of the triune God himself. And that is what it means to bear the name of Jesus Christ. It's the question at the heart of our own life and of our own faith. Given what Jesus knows about me, how does he love me? Given that Jesus knows that I cannot obey, how does he love me? Given what Jesus given that Jesus knows better than I do, that I regularly fail, that I regularly fail to love him and to love others, that I repeatedly resist him, I repeatedly deny him, I repeatedly turn my eyes from him, I repeatedly abandon him, I repeatedly betray him, what does he do? How does he love me? But it gets worse because given what he knows about my spouse, how does he love her? <laughs> given what he knows about my children, how does he love them? 
given what he knows about your spouse, given what he knows about your children, how does he love them? We know and we rejoice in the fact that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But how he loves us, when he loves us, how he makes us his own and when he makes us his own can be a really messy business that we prefer not to watch. And we certainly don't want to participate in. I once knew someone who had been who I had invited into this into this process who jumped up in a rage and said, no, I cannot do that. I can't believe you would ask me to do something like that. It's a messy and painful and even excruciating business, this peacemaking love of Jesus. Look at the passage. This peacemaking love of Jesus involves prior knowledge. Matthew has introduces us to what's going on in the opening verses of chapter 26. But then, in, as we looked at last week, verses 14 through 16, we know that one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, actually went and sold his soul and sold his friendship with Jesus. All the Gospels, all four of them, make it clear that Jesus knew full well as he goes into that evening, who was involved in what schemes and how. He knew who was actively scheming and who, by virtue of weak character and fear, were being carried along by the scheming of others. He knew all of that. He didn't just guess it. He just didn't have a gut feeling. He knew it. In our passage alone, there's not only the opening which, in which Judas is identified as one of the twelve who sold his soul and that of Jesus. But even as the evening progresses, he answers, he's, excuse me, in verse 31, Jesus says to them, you will fall away. You will all fall away because of me this night. This is scandalous to the to the disciples because they don't know it. They don't believe it. They can't believe he would even suggest such a thing. Jesus knows more about them than they know. This peacemaking love of Jesus, it seems, involves his prior knowledge. It wasn't just that night. It's not just that he walked into Jerusalem a few days earlier and he's kind of getting a lay of the land and he's been hearing whispers among his disciples. And he's thinking to himself, oh, I see it. Tonight's the night. He had told his disciples repeatedly, even in the account of Matthew itself, repeatedly, we're going to Jerusalem where I will be betrayed, I will be arrested, I will suffer, and I will die. No way! That can't even happen! I'm going to Jerusalem, where I will be betrayed, and I will suffer. Jesus knew. 
John chapter 2 tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to the, to the wonders and the belief and the accolades of the people because he knew what was in the heart of man. Jesus knew ahead of time. Jesus knew. Just think about this for just a moment. If you knew that in going to Jerusalem, you would be betrayed and abandoned and arrested and tortured and executed, would you go? Be careful. Because I know your temptation is to say, oh, yes, of course I would go. And yet it's hard for us to just love difficult people. Isn't it? If we suspect that we're going to be hurt by difficult people, we're not going to do that. We're not going to enter into a city where it's all but certain that we're going to be executed. Abandoned and left alone. Jesus knew this. And not only does he know it, and in so knowing he says, all right, well, we'll let the chips fall where they are, and he goes in. Jesus, knowing what he knew, put a plan in place. Look at that. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, verse 17, the disciples came to Jesus. Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city and there will be a certain man, a so-and-so, and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. In the parallel passage in Mark, it, Mark has, records Jesus saying to them, now go into a city and you're going to see a man carrying a water jug. Well, you're thinking to yourself, those of us in the 20th century, we're thinking, okay, water jugs, first century, not a big deal. But it was a big deal because men would carry uh, skins. They would carry their little leather can, um, canteen. It was the women who would be carrying water jugs back and forth from the well to the house for the daily chores. It's not a man that would be carrying a water jug. And so as one commentator said, it's kind of like saying, all right, I want you to go to the mall and you find the man who's carrying the red purse. I'm realizing now, even as I say that, that the illustration loses some of its impact in our day and age. Jesus had made a plan. Knowing what he knew, he made a plan for how the evening would go. Everything that happened that evening was part of his plan. He even, Luke tells us that he even desired, he had earnestly looked forward to having this meal with them. Arrangements had been made. Not only was he not, not interested in avoiding the events that he knew about, but he was actually interested in orchestrating them, participating in them. In fact, 
Not only does the peacemaking love of Jesus involve prior knowledge and an intentional plan to enter into it, but it actually involves participation. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. He reclined with them. You re- Some of you will remember uh, the ancient practice of these low tables in which you stretched out with your head toward the table and your legs out behind you by le- leaning on your left side, perhaps eating with your right hand. Jesus setting himself there as the host of this meal. Jesus says in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in the Father's kingdom. This is a special meal. It is not merely the Passover meal, but it is at least the Passover meal. You remember the Passover, right? It's the celebration, the annual celebration in which the Jews remembered the mighty works of God's steadfast love, according to which they were rescued out of slavery from Egypt. And you remember that last night, the angel of death came and and passed over the house that had the blood on the doorposts. Because a lamb had been slain for that household. And every year they celebrated in remembrance of that event and in in anticipation of that great Passover event when that one final lamb would be offered up. It's not merely a celebration of the Passover, but it is his last meal. Jesus, Luke says, as we just said, has earnestly desired to eat this meal with them. Why? Well, of course, yes, it's his final meal before the departure, but it's not merely that. And yes, of course, it has special significance of Jesus as the lamb of this Passover. And that, in fact, that's the significance of him saying, verse 26, take, eat, this is my body. But not least or to be overlooked, because Jesus here, it is, is here that Jesus pulls the pin on what I might call his peacemaking grenades that will explode upon them when, when they hear the news of his resurrection. It is this meal, it is this Passover, it is the timing of it. In other words, it's the timing of this meal prior to the betrayals and the denials and the abandonments that he knows about. That's the key to his peacemaking strategy. Not only involves prior knowledge and planning participation, but it involves a sacrifice. After blessing, he took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he says, take and eat, this is my body. And took a cup when he had given thanks to them. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it, all of you. Why? 
For this is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What sins? The sins that they do not yet know about, but he knows full well. He makes it explicit. One of you will betray me. And then immediately after this, all of you will abandon me. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Your sins. The ones that you will commit that you don't know about and that you believe are unforgivable. That I know full well about. He makes it explicit. Who is it that is going to betray him? And Jesus gives this cryptic answer. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me. Well, all of them had dipped their hand in the dish with him. That was how the meal was eaten. They're all dipping their bread in the oil. We're all eating with you, Jesus. And Jesus lets the discomfort of that fact linger for a moment. Is it I, Lord? Could, could it be I, Lord? Oh, it's Judas. And Judas identifies himself. Is it I, Lord? And Jesus says, you say so. Knowing this, Jesus offers his body and he offers his blood to the disciples in the place of the Passover lamb. He serves himself up as the main course. You see, this meal was not just a Passover. It was not just another Passover. This meal was the Passover toward which all Passovers looked. It was the final Passover. The first course in, in the Lord's banqueting, promised banqueting feast, the first course has been served and now the dishes are being removed and the second course of that long promised feast of the Father's love was now being served up. We were moving toward the main course. We are moving toward the main course, which will be served up, verse 29, on that day when he drinks it new with us in his Father's kingdom. Jesus is referring to the main course, the main wedding feast of the Lamb that we will all enjoy with him around his table, which brings us to the fact that the peacemaking love of Jesus involves an eternal hope. This meal was rooted in God's faithfulness in the past and it provides for forgiveness of sins in the present and it looks forward to that great day when we will all join together at that banqueting feast. All of us. All of us. Despite what you may have encountered in your own soul, in your own heart this week, all of us, because Jesus knew what was in our heart. 
and he provided for it. It's simply stunning, if messy, to look at the peacemaking process of Christ's great love. From some perspectives, it's just disgusting. Who would do a thing like that? That person is so strange. What, what planet is such a person from? Planet kingdom. Because in these moments, in this meal... Jesus is opening the deepest window into the glory of the triune God's love. This is what the love of the Father looks like. Knowing what he does know about your heart and about my heart, about the disciples' heart, knowing that, he gives himself to us. It's our instinct to say, Given what he knows about me, in spite of what he knows about me, yet he loves me. But brothers and sisters, that is not what the gospel says. Hear me again. Our instinct is to say, Jesus' love is so wonderful that in spite of what he knows about me, he loves me. But brothers and sisters, that is not the gospel. The gospel is much more glorious and profound and powerful than that. It's because of what he knows about me that he comes. It is because he made me. It's because he knit me together in my mother's womb. It's because of what he knows about my betraying heart. And because of his great love that he comes and he says, that will not happen to mine. It's because he knows I'm a slave to sin. It's because he knows I am lost and wandering about in the darkness of my rebellion. It's because he knows my tendency to deny him. It's because he knows I can't obey him that he comes. That's the glory of the holy God's love. And there is nothing like it in all the world. It's because of what he knows about our rebellion, because of what he knows about our sin, because of what he knows about our tendency toward abandonment and denial and disobedience, fickleness and frailty and faithlessness, because of our daily inability to obey him. It's because of all of that that he came. He formulates and puts into place a plan for a preemptive response long before I know the condition of my own heart. Prior to coming, he puts this plan into action. A plan according to which my folly would be used to execute his plan for my salvation. That's how he makes peace. Not only does Jesus prove to be loving when we sin, but he proves his love in that before we sinned, before
before we even knew it, He provided for it. Before we even knew it, He set His love upon us. So great is the love of the Father. It's because of what He knows about my heart. It's because of what He knows about your heart. It's because of what He knows about Judas's heart. The denying hearts of Peter and the other disciples. That he puts this plan into action that leverages the evil intents of our hearts to accomplish the good intents of his purpose. Our instinct is to sense danger and move away. His instinct is to see the danger in which we put ourselves and come running. And to dive in. Mud and all. Given what Jesus so clearly knows about Judas, what he so clearly knows about Peter, what he so clearly knows about the other disciples, our instinct would be to get the heck out of there. I don't think you should be hanging out with Judas. I think he's a bad influence on you. God wouldn't want you to get hurt we say. He wouldn't want you to put yourself in danger, we say. But that's not what Jesus shows us. And that's not Jesus' instinct because that's not the glory of God. I have a friend who's taking Aikido with his son. Aikido, for those of you who don't know, is a martial art of absorbing, deflecting, and leveraging your enemy's rage and aggression, and sometimes strategically inflicting pain in such a way as to protect yourself, your aggressor, and others who may be around you. And so create an opportunity for peace. It's not exactly what we think of when we think of a martial or a warfare art. Yet the purpose of Aikido is not to vanquish the enemy, but to make them your friend. To make peace. What Matthew is depicting for us in this passage is a sort of slow motion cosmic Aikido master laying the groundwork to absorb and deflect and leverage his enemy's rage and aggression to secure for them their peace. It's because of what Jesus knows about the heart of Judas that he goes, around, goes about it in this way and finally says from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Our logic says, Jesus, if you knew what was going to happen, why did you go? Think of how great your ministry would have been. You were 33 years old. You were just getting started. You had another at least 20 years. 30 35 years before he had to retire. Think of all you could have done. Don't go into such dangerous places. Avoid dangerous relationships. You hear, in fact, people saying this to Paul as he was on his way to Jerusalem some years later. Rather than risk the things that Jesus risks, we find ourselves distancing ourselves. The love 
of Christ knows beforehand the treachery of our hearts. The love of Christ addresses beforehand the treachery of our hearts. Before we even know the treachery of our own hearts. So that when, in terror, we stumble into that terrifying knowledge of our own sinfulness and our own treachery, we remember that he knew this. He planned for it. He prepared for it. He provided for it. He addressed it. You see, that then is the question at the heart of our Christian life, is the heart of our assurance, is the heart of our confidence. It's the heart of Christian discipleship. Given what Jesus knew about my heart, what did he do? Given what Jesus knew about my wife's heart, what did he do? About my children's heart, what did he do? about my neighbor's heart, about that stranger's heart, about my enemy's heart, what did he do? Brothers and sisters, this is not just a question so that we may feel safe and secure and comfortable. Because in the revelation of the glory of God's love, he is showing us this now is who you are. We are now his peacemakers. This is how he makes peace. Given what we know about our spouses, how will we love them? Given what we know about our children, how will we love them? Given what we know about humanity, how will we love them? For the love of Christ, given what we know about this love of Christ, how will we love? For the love of Christ, given what we know about strangers who smell of weed and look strung out on meth, how will we love them? For the love of Christ, given what we know of our valley, how will we love it? For the love of Christ, given what we know about one another in this room, about CVPC as a body, about the church of Jesus Christ, how will we love it? Because Jesus has shown us the way he has served himself up. This is his peacemaking process. That we may enter into it, we may benefit from it, we may participate in it, we may celebrate it. Indeed, as I say regularly, that we may see it and savor it and walk in it. So as children of the living God, by the peacemaking love of Jesus Christ, let us go to him in prayer. So Jesus, we come.